Well, hello everybody. Welcome back to Rob Reads to You after an absence of uh, three plus years or so, and more than five years since we actually started our current book, Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Uh, let's see. A few things have happened since the last time that uh, I checked in with y'all. Uh, the computer that I've been recording these things on broke, like literally in half. Uh, I started wearing reading glasses. Uh, and there's a global pandemic going on that has us staying in our homes and washing our hands frequently uh, in the interest of public health and safety. Which, um, incidentally, y'all should be staying in your homes and washing your hands in the interest of public health and safety. If you're not, do it. Do it now. But I figured what better time than when everybody is you know, stuck at home, looking for things to do, to bring this back when I have a literally captive audience. All right. So we're going to finish up with this book, finally. Well, not this time, but, you know, we're still only about halfway through it. But we are going to get through it, and we're going to keep going, because I want to read more to you. Anyway, when we last left off with Anne of Avonlea by Lucy Maud Montgomery, uh, Anne was getting ready for a visit by Mrs. Charlotte Morgan, a prominent uh, novelist, very famous novelist in the world of the book, anyway, that she was very, uh, very fond of. And uh, yeah, she's getting ready for that visit. So I'm sure it'll all go without a hitch. Chapter 17. A chapter of accidents. Oh, that's already a good sign. Anne woke three times in the night and made pilgrimages to her window to make sure that Uncle Abe's prediction was not coming true. Finally, the morning dawned pearly and lustrous in a sky full of silver sheen and radiance, and the wonderful day had arrived. Diana appeared soon after breakfast, with a basket of flowers over one arm and her muslin dress over the other for it would not do to don it until all the dinner preparations were completed. Meanwhile, she wore her afternoon pink print and a lawn apron fearfully and wonderfully ruffled and frilled, and very neat and pretty and rosy she was. "'You look simply sweet,' said Anne admiringly. Diana sighed. "'But I've had to let out every one of my dresses again. I weigh four pounds more than I did in July. And where will this end?' Mrs. Morgan's heroines are all tall and slender. And this is why body-positive representation in the media is important. Well, let's forget our troubles and think of our mercies, said Anne gaily. Mrs. Allen says that whenever we think of anything that is a trial to us, we should also think of something nice that we can set over against it. If you are slightly too plump, you've got the dearest dimples. And if I have a freckled nose, the shape of it is all right. Do you think the lemon juice did any good? Yes, I really think it did, said Diana critically, and much elated, and led the way to the garden, which was full of airy shadows and wavering golden lights. We'll decorate the parlor first. We have plenty of time, for Priscilla said they'd be here around about twelve or half past at the latest, so we'll have dinner at one. There may have been two happier and more excited girls somewhere in Canada or the United States at that moment, but I doubt it. Every snip of the scissors, as rose and peony and bluebell fell, seemed to chirp, Mrs. Morgan is coming today. Anne wondered how Mr. Harrison could go on placidly mowing hay in the field across the lane, just as if nothing were going to happen. 
The parlor at Green Gables was a rather severe and gloomy apartment, with rigid horsehair furniture, stiff lace curtains, and white antimacassars that were always laid at a perfectly correct angle, except at such times that they clung to unfortunate people's buttons. Even Anne had never been able to infuse much grace into it, for Marilla would not permit any alterations. But it is wonderful what flowers can accomplish if you give them a fair chance. When Anne and Diana finished with the room, you would not have recognized it. A great blue bowl full of snowballs overflowed on the polished table. The shining black mantelpiece was heaped with roses and ferns. Every shelf of the whatnot held a sheaf of bluebells. The dark corners on either side of the grate were lighted up with jars full of glowing crimson peonies, and the grate itself was aflame with yellow poppies. All this splendor and color mingled with the sunshine falling through the honeysuckle vines at the windows in a leafy ride of dancing shadows over walls and floor, made of the usually dismal little room the veritable bower of Anne's imagination, and even extorted a tribute of admiration from Marilla, who came in to criticize and remained to praise. "'Now we must set the table,' said Anne, in the tone of a priestess about to perform some sacred rite in honor of a divinity." We'll have a big vaseful of wild roses in the center, and one single rose in front of everybody's plate, and a special bouquet of rosebuds only by Mrs. Morgan's, an allusion to the rosebud garden, you know. The table was set in the sitting room, with Marilla's finest linen and the best china, glass, and silver. You may be perfectly certain that every article placed on it was polished or scoured to the highest possible perfection of gloss and glitter. Then the girls tripped out to the kitchen, which was filled with appetizing odors emanating from the oven, where the chickens were already sizzling splendidly. Anne prepared the potatoes, and Diana got the peas and beans ready. Then, while Diana shut herself into the pantry to compound the lettuce salad, Anne, whose cheeks were already beginning to glow crimson, as much with excitement as from the heat of the fire, prepared the bread sauce for the chickens, minced her onions for the soup, and finally whipped the cream for her lemon pies. And what about Davy all this time? Was he redeeming his promise to be good? He was indeed. To be sure, he insisted on remaining in the kitchen, for his curiosity wanted to see all that went on. But as he sat quietly in a corner, busily engaged in untying the knots in a piece of herring net he had brought home from his last trip to the shore, nobody objected to this. At half past eleven, the lettuce salad was made, the golden circles of the pies were heaped with whipped cream, and everything was sizzling and bubbling that ought to sizzle and bubble. "'We'd better go and dress now,' said Anne, "'for they may be here by twelve. We must have dinner at sharp one, for the soup must be served as soon as it's done.' Serious indeed were the toilette rites presently performed in the East Gable. Anne peered anxiously at her nose, and rejoiced to see that its freckles were not at all prominent thanks either to the lemon juice or to the unusual flush on her cheeks. When they were ready, they looked quite as sweet and trim and girlish as ever did any of Mrs. Morgan's heroines. "'I do hope I'll be able to say something once in a while and not sit like a mute,' said Diana anxiously. "'All Mrs. Morgan's heroines converse so beautifully. But I'm afraid I'll be tongue-tied and stupid. And I'll be sure to say, I seen.' I haven't often said it since Miss Stacy taught here, but in moments of excitement it's sure to pop out. And if I were to say I seen before Mrs. Morgan, I'd die of mortification. And it would be almost as bad to have nothing to say. I'm nervous about a good many things, said Anne, but I don't think there's much fear that I won't be able to talk. And, to do her justice, there wasn't.
Anne shrouded her muslin glories in a big apron and went down to concoct her soup. Marilla had dressed herself and the twins, and looked more excited than she had ever been known to look before. At half-past twelve, the Allens and Miss Stacy came. Everything was going well, but Anne was beginning to feel nervous. It was surely time for Priscilla and Mrs. Morgan to arrive. She made frequent trips to the gate and looked as anxiously down the lane as ever her namesake in the Bluebeard story peered from the tower casement. "'Suppose they don't come at all,' she said piteously. "'Don't suppose it. It would be too mean,' said Diana, who, however, was beginning to have uncomfortable misgivings on the subject. "'Anne,' said Marilla, coming out from the parlor, "'Miss Stacy wants to see Miss Barry's willowware platter.' Anne hastened to the sitting-room closet to get the platter. She had, in accordance with her promise to Mrs. Lynde, written to Miss Barry of Charlottetown, asking for the loan of it. Miss Barry was an old friend of Anne's, and she promptly sent the platter out, with a letter exhorting Anne to be very careful of it, for she had paid twenty dollars for it. The platter had served its purpose at the aid bazaar, and had then been returned to the Green Gables closet, for Anne would not trust anybody but herself to take it back to town. She carried the platter carefully to the front door where her guests were enjoying the cool breeze that blew up from the brook. It was examined and admired. Then, just as Anne had taken it back into her own hands, a terrific crash and clatter sounded from the kitchen pantry. Marilla, Diana, and Anne fled out, the latter pausing only long enough to set the precious platter hastily down on the second step of the stairs. When they reached the pantry, a truly harrowing spectacle met their eyes. A guilty-looking small boy scrambling down from the table, with his clean print blouse liberally plastered with yellow filling, and on the table the shattered remnants of what had been two brave becreamed lemon pies. Davy had finished raveling out his herring net and had wound the twine into a ball. Then he had gone into the pantry to put it up on the shelf above the table, where he already kept a score or so of similar balls, which, so far as could be discovered, served no useful purpose save to yield the joy of possession. Davy had to climb on the table and reach over to the shelf at a dangerous angle, something he had been forbidden by Marilla to do, as he had come to grief once before in the experiment. The result in this instance was disastrous. Davy slipped and came sprawling squarely down on the lemon pies. His clean blouse was ruined for that time, and the pies for all time. It is, however, an ill wind that blows nobody good, and the pig was eventually the gainer by Davy's mischance. Davy Keith, said Marilla, shaking him by the shoulder, didn't I forbid you to climb up on that table again? Didn't I? I forgot, whimpered Davy. You've told me not to do such an awful lot of things that I can't remember them all. Well, you march upstairs and stay there till after dinner. Perhaps you'll get them sorted out in your memory by that time. No, Anne, never you mind interceding for him. I'm not punishing him because he spoiled your pies. That was an accident. I'm punishing him for his disobedience. Go, Davy, I say. Ain't I to have any dinner? wailed Davy. You can come down after dinner is over and have yours in the kitchen. Oh, all right, said Davy, somewhat comforted. I know Anne'll save, me, save some nice bones for me, won't you, Anne? Because you know I didn't mean to fall on the pies. See, Anne... Since they are spoiled, can't I take some of the pieces upstairs with me? No, no lemon pie for you, Master Davy, said Marilla, pushing him toward the hall. What shall we do for dessert? asked Anne, looking regretfully at the wreck and ruin. 
Get out a crock of strawberry preserves, said Marilla consolingly. There's plenty of whipped cream left in the bowl for it. One o'clock came, but no Priscilla or Mrs. Morgan. Anne was in an agony. Everything was done to a turn, and the soup was just what soup should be, but couldn't be depended on to remain so for any length of time. I don't believe they're coming after all, said Marilla crossly. Anne and Diana sought comfort in each other's eyes. At half-past one, Marilla again emerged from the parlor. Girls, we must have dinner. Everybody is hungry and it's no use waiting any longer. Priscilla and Mrs. Morgan are not coming, that's plain, and nothing is being improved by waiting. Anne and Diana set about lifting the dinner, with all the zest gone out of the performance. I don't believe I'll be able to eat a mouthful, said Diana dolefully. Nor I. But I hope everything will be nice for Miss Stacy's and Mr. and Mrs. Allen's sakes, said Anne listlessly. When Diana dished the peas, she tasted them, and a very peculiar expression crossed her face. Anne, did you put sugar in these peas? Yes, said Anne, mashing the potatoes with the air of one expected to do her duty. I put a spoonful of sugar in. We always do. Don't you like it? But I put a spoonful in, too, when I set them on the stove, said Diana. Anne dropped her masher and tasted the peas also. Then she made a grimace. How awful! I never dreamed you would put sugar in, because I knew your mother never does. I happened to think of it for a wonder. I'm always forgetting it. So I popped a spoonful in. It's a case of too many cooks, I guess, said Marilla, who had listened to this dialogue with a rather guilty expression. I didn't think you'd remember about the sugar, Anne, for I'm perfectly certain you never did before. So I put in a spoonful. The guests in the parlor heard peal after peal of laughter from the kitchen, but they never knew what the fun was about. There were no green peas on the dinner table that day, however. Well said Anne, sobering down again with a sigh of recollection. We have the salad, anyhow, and I don't think anything has happened to the beans. Let's carry the things in and get it over. It cannot be said that the dinner was a notable success socially. The Allens and Miss Stacy exerted themselves to save the situation, and Marilla's customary placidity was not noticeably ruffled. But Anne and Diana, between their disappointment and the reaction from their excitement of the forenoon, could neither talk nor eat. Anne tried heroically to bear her part in the conversation for the sake of her guests, but all the sparkle had been quenched in her for the time being, and in spite of her love for the Allens and Miss Stacy, she couldn't help thinking how nice it would be when everybody had gone home and she could bury her weariness and disappointment in the pillows in the east of the East Gable. There is an old proverb that really seems at times to be inspired. It never rains, but it pours. The measure of that day's tribulations was not yet full. Just as Mr. Allen had finished returning thanks, there arose a strange, ominous sound on the stairs, as of some hard, heavy object bounding from step to step, finishing up with a grand smash at the bottom. Everybody ran out into the hall. Anne gave a shriek of dismay. At the bottom of the stairs lay a big pink conch shell amid the fragments of what had been Mrs. Bear Miss Barry's platter. And at the top of the stairs knelt a terrified Davy, gazing down with wide open eyes at the havoc. Davy, said Marilla ominously, did you throw that conch down on purpose?
No, I never did, whimpered Davy. I was just kneeling here, quiet as quiet, to watch you folks through the banisters, and my foot struck that old thing and pushed it off, and I'm awful hungry. And I do wish you'd lick a fellow and have done with it, instead of always sending him upstairs to miss all the fun. Don't blame Davy, said Anne, gathering up the fragments with trembling fingers. It was my fault. I set that platter there and forgot all about it. I am properly punished for my carelessness, but, oh, what will Miss Barry say? Well, you know she only bought it, so it isn't the same as if it was an heirloom, said Diana, trying to console. The guests went away soon after, feeling that it was the most tactful thing to do. And Anne and Diana washed the dishes, talking less than they had ever been known to do before. Then Diana went home with a headache, and Anne went with another to the East Gable, where she stayed until Marilla came home from the post office at sunset, with a letter from Priscilla written the day before. Mrs. Morgan had sprained her ankle so severely that she could not leave her room. And oh, Anne dear, wrote Priscilla, I'm so sorry, but I'm afraid we won't get up to Green Gables at all now, for by the time Auntie's ankle is well, she will have to go back to Toronto. She has to be there by a certain date. "'Well,' sighed Anne, laying the letter down on the red sandstone step of the back porch, where she was sitting, while the twilight rains down out of a dappled sky. "'I always thought it was too good to be true that Mrs. Morgan should really come. "'But there. That speech sounds as pessimistic as Miss Eliza Andrews, and I'm ashamed of making it. "'After all, it was not too good to be true. "'Things just as good and far better are coming true for me all the time. "'And I suppose the events of today had a... I have a funny side, too. Perhaps when Diana and I are old and gray, we shall be able to laugh over them. But I feel that I can't expect to do it before then, for it has truly been a bitter disappointment. You'll probably have a good many more and worse disappointments than that before you get through life, said Marilla, who honestly thought she was making a comforting speech. It seems to me, Anne, that you are never going to outgrow your fashion of setting your heart so on things and then crashing down into despair because you don't get them. I know I'm too much inclined that way, agreed Anne ruefully. When I think something nice is going to happen, I seem to fly right up on the wings of anticipation, and then the first thing I realize I drop down to earth with a thud. But really, Marilla, the flying part is glorious as long as it lasts. It's like soaring through a sunset. I think it almost pays for the thud. Well, maybe it does, admitted Marilla. I'd rather walk calmly along and do without both flying and thud. But everybody has her own way of living. I used to think there was only one right way. But since I've had you and the twins to bring up, I don't feel so sure of it. What are you going to do about Miss Barry's platter? Pay her back the twenty dollars she paid for it, I suppose. I'm so thankful it wasn't a cherished heirloom, because then no money could replace it. Maybe you could find one like it somewhere and buy it for her. I'm afraid not. Platters as old as that are very scarce. Mrs. Lynde couldn't find one anywhere for the supper. I only wish I could, for, of course, Miss Barry would just as soon have one platter as another, if both were equally old and genuine. Marilla, look at that big star over Mr. Harrison's maple grove, with all that holy hush of silvery sky about it. It gives me a feeling that is like a prayer. After all, when one can see stars and skies like that, little disappointments and accidents can't matter so much, can they? 
Where's Davy? said Marilla with an indifferent glance at the star. In bed. I've promised to take him and Dora to the shore for a picnic tomorrow. Of course, the original agreement was that he must be good, but he tried to be good, and I hadn't the heart to disappoint him. You'll drown yourself or the twins rowing about that the pond in that flat, grumbled Marilla. I've lived here for sixty years, and I've never been on the pond yet. Well, it's never too late to mend, said Anne roguishly. Suppose you come with us tomorrow. We'll shut Green Gables up and spend the whole day at the shore, daffing the world aside. No, thank you, said Marilla with indignant emphasis. It, I'd be a nice sight, wouldn't I, rowing down the pond in a flat? I think I hear Rachel pronouncing on it. There's Mr. Harrison driving away somewhere. Do you suppose there is any truth in the gossip that Mr. Harrison is going to see Isabella Andrews? No, I'm sure there isn't. He just called there one evening on business with Mr. Harmon Andrews, and Mrs. Lynde saw him, and said she knew he was courting because he had a white collar on. I don't believe Mr. Harrison will ever marry. He seems to have a prejudice against marriage. Well, you can never tell about those old bachelors. And if he had a white collar on, I'd agree with Rachel that it looks suspicious, for I'm sure he never was seen with one before. I think he only put it on because he wanted to conclude a business deal with Harmon Andrews said Anne. I've heard him say that's the only time a man needs to be particular about his appearance, because if he looks prosperous, the party of the second part won't be so likely to try to cheat him. I really feel sorry for Mr. Harrison. I don't believe he feels satisfied with his life. It must be very lonely to have no one to care about except a parrot, don't you think? But I notice Mr. Harrison doesn't like to be pitied. Nobody does, I imagine. There's Gilbert coming up the lane, said Marilla. If he wants you to go for a row on the pond, mind you put on your coat and rubbers. There's a heavy dew tonight. Chapter 18 An Adventure on the Tory Road Anne, said Davy, sitting up in bed and propping his chin on his hands, Anne, where is sleep? People go to sleep every night, and of course I know it's the place where I do the things I dream, but I want to know where it is and how I get there and back without knowing anything about it. And in my nighty too. Where is it? Anne was kneeling at the west gable window watching the sunset sky that was like a great flower with petals of crocus and a heart of fiery yellow. She turned her head at Davy's question and answered dreamily, Over the mountains of the moon, down the valley of the shadow. Paul Irving would have known the meaning of this, or made a meaning out of it for himself if he didn't, but practical Davy, who, as Anne often despairingly remarked, hadn't a particle of imagination, was only puzzled and disgusted. Anne, I believe you're just talking nonsense. Of course I was, dear boy. Don't you know that it is only very foolish people who talk sense all the time? Well, I think you might give a sensible answer when I ask a sensible question, said Davy in an injured tone. Oh, you are too little to understand, said Anne. But she felt rather ashamed of saying it, for had she not, in keen remembrance of many similar snubs administered in her own early years, solemnly vowed that she would never tell any child it was too little to understand? Yet here she was doing it, so wide sometimes is the gulf between theory and practice. Well, I'm doing my best to grow, said Davy, but it's a thing you can't hurry much. If Marilla wasn't so stingy with her jam, I believe I'd grow a lot faster. 
Marilla is not stingy, Davy, said Anne severely. It is very ungrateful of you to say such a thing. There's another word that means the same thing and sounds a lot better, but I don't just remember it, said Davy, frowning intently. I heard Marilla say she was it herself the other day. If you mean economical, it's a very different thing from being stingy. It is an excellent trait in a person if she is economical. If Marilla had been stingy, she wouldn't have taken you and Dora when your mother died. Would you have liked to live with Miss, Mrs. Wiggins? You just bet I wouldn't. Davy was emphatic on that point. Nor I don't want to go out to Uncle Richard neither. I'd far rather live here, even if Marilla is that long-tailed word when it comes to jam, because you're here, Anne. Say, Anne, won't you tell me a story before I go to sleep? I don't want a fairy story. They're all right for girls, I suppose, but I want something exciting. Lots of killing and shooting in it, and a house on fire, and interesting things like that. Fortunately for Anne, Marilla called out at this moment from her room. Anne, Diana's signaling at a great rate. You'd better see what she wants. Anne ran to the east gable and saw flashes of light coming through the twilight from Diana's window in groups of five, which meant, according to their old childish code, come over at once for I have something important to reveal. Anne threw her white shawl over her head and hastened through the haunted wood and across Mr. Bell's pasture corner to Orchard Slope. I've got good news for you, Anne, said Diana. Mother and I have just got home from Carmody, and I saw Mary Sentner from Spencervale in Mr. Blair's store. She says the old cop girls on the Tory Road have a willowware plate, and she thinks it's exactly like the one we had at the supper. She says they'll likely sell it, for Martha Cop has never been known to keep anything she could sell. But if they won't, there's a platter at Wesley Key or Keeson's at Spencervale, and she knows they'd sell it, but she isn't sure it's just the same kind as Aunt Josephine's. I'll go right over to Spencervale after tomorrow, said Anne resolutely, and you must come with me. It will be such a weight off my mind, for I have to go to town day after tomorrow, and how can I face your Aunt Josephine without a willow-ware platter? It would be even worse than the time I had to confess about jumping on the spare room bed. Both girls laughed over the old memory, concerning which, if any of my readers are ignorant and curious, I must refer them to Anne's earlier history. The next afternoon, the girls fared forth on their platter-hunting expedition. It was ten miles to Spencervale, and the day was not especially pleasant for traveling. It was very warm and windless, and the dust on the road was such as might have been expected after six weeks of dry weather. "'Oh, I do wish it would rain soon,' sighed Anne. "'Everything is so parched up. The poor fields just seem pitiful to me, and the trees seem to be stretching out their hands, pleading for rain.' As for my garden, it hurts me every time I go into it. I suppose I shouldn't complain about a garden when the farmer's crops are suffering so. Mr. Harrison says his pastures are so scorched up that he, his poor cows can hardly get a bite to eat, and he feels guilty of cruelty to animals every time he meets their eyes. After a wearisome drive, the girls reached Spencervale and turned down the Tory Road, a green, solitary highway where the strips of grass between the wheel tracks bore evidence to lack of travel. Along most of its extent, it was lined with thick-set young spruces crowding down to the roadway, with here and there a break where the back field of a Spencervale farm came out to the fence or an expanse of stumps was aflame with fireweed and goldenrod. "'Why is it called the Tory Road?' asked Anne. 
Mr. Allen says it is on the principle of calling a place a grove because there are no trees in it, said Diana, for nobody lives along the road except the cop girls and old Martin Bavier at the further end, who is a liberal. The Tory government ran the road through when they were in power just to show they were doing something. Diana's father was a liberal, for which reason she and Anne never discussed politics. Green Gables folk had always been conservatives. Finally, the girls came to the old cop homestead, a place of such exceeding external neatness that even Green Gables would have suffered by contrast. The house was a very old-fashioned one, situated on a slope, which fact had necessitated the building of a stone basement under one end. The house and outbuildings were all whitewashed to a condition of blinding perfection, and not a weed was visible in the prim kitchen garden surrounded by its white paling. The shades are all down, said Dinah ruefully. I believe that nobody is home. This proved to be the case. The girls looked at each other in perplexity. I don't know what to do, said Anne. If I were sure the platter was the right kind, I would not mind waiting until they came home. But if it isn't, it may be too late to go to Wesley Keeson's afterward. Dinah looked at a certain little square window over the basement. That is the pantry window, I feel sure, she said, because this house is just like Uncle Charles's at Newbridge, and that is their pantry window. The shade isn't down, so if we climbed up on the roof of that little house, we could look into the pantry and might be able to see the platter. Do you think it would be any harm? No, I don't think so, decided Anne, after due reflection, since our motive is not idle curiosity. This important point of ethics being settled, Anne prepared to mount the aforesaid little house, a construction of laths, with a peaked roof, which had in times past served as a habitation for ducks. The cop girls had given up keeping ducks, because they were such untidy birds, and the house had not been in use for some years, save as an abode of correction for setting hens. Although scrupulously whitewashed, it had become somewhat shaky, and Anne felt rather dubious as she scrambled up from the vantage point of a keg placed on a box. "'I'm afraid it won't bear my weight,' she said as she gingerly stepped on the roof. "'Lean on the windowsill,' advised Diana, and Anne accordingly leaned. Much to her delight, she saw, as she peered through the pane, a willowware platter exactly such as she was in quest of, on the shelf in front of the window. So much she saw before the catastrophe came. In her joy, Anne forgot the precarious nature of her footing, incautiously ceased to lean on the windowsill, gave an impulsive little hop of pleasure, and the next moment she had crashed through the roof up to her armpits, and there she hung, quite unable to extricate herself. Diana dashed into the duck house, and, seizing her unfortunate friend by the waist, tried to draw her down. Ow! Don't! shrieked poor Anne. There are some long splinters sticking into me. See if you can put something under my feet. Then perhaps I can draw myself up. Diana hastily dragged in the previously mentioned keg, and Anne found that it was just sufficiently high to furnish a secure resting place for her feet. But she could not release herself. Could I pull you out if I crawled up? suggested Diana. Anne shook her head hopelessly. No, the splinters hurt too badly. If you can find an axe, you might chop me out, though. Dear, I do really begin to believe that I was born under an ill-omened star. Diana searched faithfully, but no axe was to be found. I'll have to go for help, 
she said, returning to the prisoner. No, indeed you won't, said Anne vehemently. If you do, the story of this will get out everywhere, and I shall be ashamed to show my face. No, we must just wait until the cop girls come home and bind them to secrecy. They'll know where the axe is and get me out. I'm not uncomfortable as long as I keep perfectly still. Not uncomfortable in body, I mean. Oh, I wonder what the cop girls value this house at. I shall have to pay for the damage I've done, but I wouldn't mind that if I were only sure they would understand my motive in peeping in at their pantry window. My sole comfort is that the platter is just the kind I want, and if Miss Cop will only sell it to me, I shall be resigned to what has happened. What if the cop girls don't come home until after night? Or till tomorrow? suggested Diana. If they're not back by sunset, you'll have to go for other assistance, I suppose, said Anne reluctantly. But you mustn't go until you really have to. Oh dear, this is a dreadful predicament. I wouldn't mind my misfortune so much if they were romantic, as Mrs. Morgan's heroines always are. But they are always just simply ridiculous. Fancy what the cop girls will think when they drive into their yard and see a girl's head and shoulders sticking out of the roof of one of their outhouses. Listen. Is that a wagon? Oh, no, Diana. I believe it is thunder. Thunder it was undoubtedly, and Diana, having made a hasty pilgrimage around the house, returned to announce that a very black cloud was rising rapidly in the northwest. I believe we're going to have a heavy thunder shower, she exclaimed in dismay. Oh, Anne, what will we do? We must prepare for it, said Anne tranquilly. A thunderstorm seemed a trifle in comparison with what had already happened. You'd better drive the horse and buggy into that open shed. Fortunately, my parasol is in the buggy. Here, take my hat with you. Marilla told me I was a goose to put on my best hat and to come to the Tory road, and she was right, as she always is. Diana untied the pony and drove into the shed just as the first heavy drops of rain fell. There she sat and watched the resulting downpour, which was so thick and heavy that she could hardly see Anne through it, holding the parasol bravely over her bare head. There was not a great deal of thunder, but for the best part of an hour, the rain came merrily down. Occasionally, Anne slanted back her parasol and waved an encouraging hand to her friend, but conversation at that distance and under the circumstances was quite out of the question. Finally, the rain ceased. The sun came out, and Diana ventured across the puddles of the yard. "'Did you get very wet?' she asked anxiously. "'Oh, no,' returned Anne cheerfully. "'My head and shoulders are quite dry, and my skirt is only a little damp where the rain beat through the laths. "'Don't pity me, Diana, for I haven't minded it at all. "'I kept thinking how much good the rain will do, and how glad my garden must be for it, "'and imagining what the flowers and buds would think when the drops began to fall.' I imagined out a most interesting dialogue between the asters and the sweet peas and the wild canaries in the lilac bush and the guardian spirit of the garden. When I go home, I mean to write it down. Oh, I wish I had a pencil and paper to do it now, because I dare say I'll forget the best parts before I reach home. Diana the Faithful had a pencil and discovered a sheet of wrapping paper in the box of the buggy. Anne folded up her dripping parasol, put on her hat, spread the wrapping paper on a shingle Diana handed up, and wrote out her garden idol under conditions that could hardly be considered as favorable to literature. Nevertheless, the result was quite pretty, and Diana was enraptured when Anne read it to her. Oh, Anne, it's sweet, 
just sweet. Do send it to the Canadian woman. Anne shook her head. Oh, no, it wouldn't be suitable at all. There's no plot in it, you see. It's just a string of fancies. I like writing such things, but, of course, nothing of the sort would ever do for publication, for editors insist on plots, so Priscilla says. Oh, there's Miss Sarah Cop now. Please, Diana, go and explain. Miss Sarah Cop was a small person, garbed in shabby black, with a hat chosen less for vain adornment than for qualities that would wear well. She looked as amazed as might be expected on seeing the curious tableau in her yard, but when she heard Diana's explanation, she was all sympathy. She hurriedly unlocked the back door, produced the axe, and with a few skillful blows set Anne free. The latter, somewhat tired and stiff, ducked down into the interior of her prison and thankfully emerged into liberty once more. "'Miss Cop,' she said earnestly, "'I assure you, I looked into your pantry window "'only to discover if you had a willow-ware platter. "'I didn't see anything else. "'I didn't look for anything else.' "'Bless you, that's all right,' said Miss Sarah amiably. "'You needn't worry. There's no harm done. "'Thank goodness we cops keep our pantries presentable at all times "'and don't care who sees into them. "'As for that old duck house, I'm glad it's smashed, "'for maybe now Martha will agree to having it taken down.' She never would before for fear it might come in handy sometime, and I've had to whitewash it every spring. But you might as well argue with the post as with Martha. She went to town today. I drove her to the station. And you want to buy my platter? Well, what will you give for it? Twenty dollars, said Anne, who was never meant to match business wits with a cop, or she would not have offered her price at the start. Well, I'll see, said Miss Sarah cautiously. That platter is mine, fortunately, or I'd never dare to sell it when Martha wasn't here. As it is, I dare say she'll raise a fuss. Martha's the boss of this establishment, I can tell you. I'm getting awful tired of living under another woman's thumb. But come in, come in, you must be real tired and hungry. I'll do the best I can for you in the way of tea, but I warn you not to expect anything but bread and butter and some cowcumbers. Martha locked up all the cake and cheese and preserves afore she went. She always does, because she says I'm too extravagant with them if company comes. The girls were hungry enough to do justice to any fare, and they enjoyed Miss Sarah's excellent bread and butter and cowcumbers thoroughly. When the meal was over, Miss Sarah said, I don't know as I mind selling the platter, but it's worth twenty-five dollars. It's a very old platter. Diana gave Anne's foot a gentle kick under the table, meaning don't agree she'll let it go for twenty if you hold out. But Anne was not minded to take any chances in regard to that precious platter. She promptly agreed to give twenty-five, and Miss Sarah looked as if she felt sorry she hadn't asked for thirty. Well, I guess you may have it. I want all the money I can scare up just now. The fact is, Miss Sarah threw up her head importantly with a proud flush on her thin cheeks, I'm going to be married to Luther Wallace. He wanted me twenty years ago. I liked him real well, but he was poor then, and father packed him off. I suppose I shouldn't have let him go so meek, but I was timid and frightened of father. Besides, I didn't know men were so scarce. When the girls were safely away, Diana driving and Anne holding the coveted platter carefully on her lap, the green, rain-freshened solitudes of the Tory road were enlivened by ripples of girlish laughter. I'll amuse your Aunt Josephine with the strange, eventful history of this afternoon when I go to town tomorrow. We've had a rather trying time, but it's over now. 
I've got the platter, and that rain has laid the dust beautifully. So, all's well that ends well. We're not home yet, said Diana rather pessimistically, and there's no telling what may happen before we are. You're such a girl to have adventures, Anne. Having adventures comes natural to some people, said Anne serenely. You just have a gift for them, or you haven't. And that is where we are going to end for today. This one's gone a little long, up to about 40 minutes, but, you know, it's been a break of three years, so I suppose I can go a little longer this time around. Well, anyway, thank you for coming back to Rob Reads to You, those of you that are still listening. And uh, I will record another one of these very soon, I promise. Well, thank you all for listening. Have a good night, everybody. And wash your hands. <laughs>